Good morning again. Two people will be partaking of their first Holy Communion this morning. And as should be, before we believers eat, we break open the Word of God itself. For our Lord is the bread that has come down from heaven. So please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, true, and comforting word. Father, give me grace to speak clearly, to unfold the text that's before us and give us all grace to receive the word implanted in communion with you over it to the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Two questions. One, are you a believer? You're a Christian. Say that differently. 
Do you love the portrait of Jesus that is presented in the book of Hebrews? Second question. Does life ever seem to not go the way that you would desire? Or that you expect it to? If you answered yes to both of those questions, this passage is for you. I think most of us, if we've been Christians long enough in the church world, we know this scenario. A person, they, they come to be a convert to Christianity. They're filled with joy and Bible reading and church going and home groups going. And then down the road, months later, years later, a trial hits, illness, a spouse dies or deserts them, they lose a job, treated badly by those people at the church, the death of a loved one. And then the person starts missing the gatherings of the body. And avoids believers who reach out to him or her. And eventually, he or she makes a clear break and goes back to the world and is bitter against Christians and against God. What happened? Well, all kinds of complex things that it's, we can never really get into in any particular person's life. There are many factors, but I will say that one major cause of this spiritual fainting, not persevering, was that he or she did not understand or respond to God's discipline appropriately took it lightly and if he or she never repents comes back and submits to God that means that the person may be the soil Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 13 as for what was sown on rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The subject of God's fatherly loving discipline of his children is one of the most practical truths in the Bible for us to grasp and to apply. If we don't submit to it, we may not persevere when the trials hit. So, let's go to the passage and set it in its larger context, because it's not like a whole separate chapter going on here. There's a context in which now 
our passage comes. So remember back in chapter 10, the readers themselves, some had been imprisoned and some had been persecuted in other ways. And many of them had had their goods and their stuff confiscated because of their faith in Christ. And then in chapter 11, when he lays out these Old Testament believers, many of them, because of their faith, were, were tortured or mocked or sawn in two and imprisoned, destitute. They were on the run, hiding. Then, now, at the beginning of verse, I mean, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we saw two weeks ago, he says now to them, run the race by looking to Jesus who endured a horrific death. And now, in verse 3, he gets direct about the suffering that his readers are experiencing. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider it. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Holy Spirit is saying through this writer, don't lose heart. Endure. Don't faint. Don't fall out of the race. There's much in life that can happen that could cause you to lose heart. It's all spiritually Dangerous. Okay. So, what's the key then? It's a dangerous walk, the Christian life. Well, he says the key is this. Consider Jesus. That's the key. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, stew it, ponder it, commune with Him over it, so that you may not grow weary. See, we all find it very easy to consider what that person said to us. It irritates. To, to, to meditate upon painful, unpleasant experiences in, in our lives. can't believe they treated me that way. Sinners. But in all of our pains and travails of our life, we are called in the midst of it, in the context of those things, consider the sinful Hostility against Jesus and what he went through. You see that? That's right there.
So here, here's the question. Okay, then. How is my real and deep contemplation of, of Jesus' suffering at the hands of sinful people supposed to help me? Well, that's what he does with the rest of this passage. He gives, he gives two answers to that question on how it's supposed to help you. The first answer is verse 4. And the second answer is longer. It's verses 5 through 11. So, let's look at the first one first. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So, what does he say? He says, consider... The horrible, bloody, hostile death of Jesus in light of what you are going through. Jesus shed a lot of blood slowly and was ultimately killed. So he's, you Hebrew Christians that I'm writing to have not experienced that. Not yet. Things are bad, but none of you are martyrs yet. That's why you're listening to my letter. And so notice the kind of suffering that he's referring to in the context. It's coming from hostile sinners just like he laid out in chapter 11. Some were tortured, believers, stoned, sawn in two, had to run for their lives in hiding caves. So notice the flow again. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 together now and just feel the flow. Because context is everything. I'm sorry, but I, I can feel Dan Fuller right now. Passed away, my professor, a week and a half ago. Look at it, and then look at it slowly, and then look at it slower. And look again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so Dan would say, What struggle against sin? What, what does that mean? If you just take the things, well, I use that term all the time. I struggle against sin. I preach it here all the time because it's so biblical. We are in a battle against our inbred in, in sin. So let me, just, let me just throw that in. And that's what it must mean. 
But then when you, that doesn't make any sense in the context. So, so what, is, what is he saying? That's what I think he's saying. That phrase, your struggle against sin, is not referring to our internal battle. Or battle against our internal sin. It's, it's the struggle and the difficulty that they are experiencing in persecution. In other words, there are those against them now, then, and as always, to one degree or another, antagonist in this world against Christianity, and they persecute. Those sinners who persecuted and tortured and killed Jesus in verse 3 are personified as sin in verse 4. The sin of others against you, he's saying, which is tempting you to lose heart, that is your struggle against sin or sinners. It just hasn't gotten to the point of shedding your blood yet. No martyrdom yet. Unlike Jesus. So when we get overwhelmed and weary because of any circumstance. Yes, we, there have been many martyrs since Jesus for Jesus' sake. None of us in here yet. Most may never happen. But there are persecutions at the hands of sinners. And he says, first, in the midst of it, consider Jesus' bloody, torturous death compared to what you are going through. That's his first answer of why considering Jesus is a help in your walk and endurance race. Then secondly, he says, Consider where your troubles, your pain, your suffering are ultimately coming from. And that's verses 5 through 11. Now, we've just seen very clearly in the context. Well, suffering is coming from the hostile will of human beings. And absolutely, that's what he's referring to. But that's not the only answer to the question. Where is it coming from? The bulk of this passage is built on another answer to that question. The, the main answer to who is in ultimate control of these afflictions 
The answer is God. These experiences, he says, are in fact the loving discipline of your heavenly Father. And this is not a peripheral doctrine for Christians. It is really important to understand so that you don't grow weary and lose heart and fail to persevere to the end. So let's slowly read and listen to his answer. Start with just verses 5 through 8. And interpret your own experiences in your life this way. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Which he now goes and quotes Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 to 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. End quote of his quote. And then he says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the meaning in the context is clear. What sinful, hostile enemies of the gospel do to you out of willful rebellion God is doing out of fatherly discipline. Healthy, fatherly discipline of our kids is always with an ultimate good and purpose in mind. God, our Father, has a purpose. He has a design in what is happening to us Christians. The biblical teaching in this paragraph is clear. God is in ultimate control. He is the ultimate doer and the actor in it all. He is the lover of every believer's soul in the painful, confusing, weariness-inducing experiences of life. Look at the end of verse 6 again. He chastises, or literally scourges, every son whom he receives. Who's doing the scourging? 
the spanking, the discipline. God. Read verse 6 again. For, okay, remember, he's writing it in Greek, coming from the Hebrew. For Yahweh disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. There's a place of, of communion, intimacy, and depth with God that many believers over the centuries have found to be the source of their strength to persevere. And that place is in the sovereign, loving, caring hands of their heavenly Father. Namely, knowing that God is not impotent. He is not passive. Just looking on at the pain I am experiencing in my life right now. Because His hands are tied. And He has no authority or power over Satan or demons affecting sinners who are beating us up. No, not my God, they would say. But He rules over sinners and Satan. And they unwittingly in persecution, fulfill God's mysterious, wise, and loving purposes of child training in the lives of His people. And yet every one of them, those sinners, are guilty. And they're at fault. Notice how the Apostle Peter unveils this same Truth. In the very first sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost, in the middle of that sermon, Peter makes a life-changing, worldview-changing, theology-changing statement. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite Plan and foreknowledge of God. You, sinners, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then later in chapter 4 of Acts, the early church gets together and pray. And God wants us to hear their prayer. For truly, Father, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, who was gathered together against Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered together to do 
whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's been true throughout church history. In the persecution of believers and the martyrdom of many. God, in other words, saves us. He saves us who are utterly undeserving, wretched sinners by bringing us to His Son in new birth. And then the rest of our lives, whether it's two days or 80 years, He's working in us and upon us, molding and growing us and maturing us. And that's called sanctification. And part of that sanctification is causing us to read Scripture carefully so that we let the Scripture's meaning come forth. It's not merely an intellectual game. Dan Fuller communicated that, communicated that clearly, not just with his mind, but with his passion and a humility before the word of God that is to affect our living, our soul, our praying, our interpreting, our life experiences. Part of sanctification is causing us to take the words of Scripture seriously and read them carefully so that what it says, as hard as it may be, we allow it to speak. And then what happens is miraculously, by God's grace, we'll find ourselves believing what I read. And that's part of sanctification. Ten years as a Christian, And I could not believe many, many texts in the Bible because I came to them with my own set theological presuppositions about who God is. That's a hard thing to break. And we must always continue to work on it as you open up your Bible and read. So that, what is there? You get the grace of, I believe you. And when you do, or to just say it in the negative, this would mean be very careful not to let your philosophical worldview be brought to the Bible and make it say something that it does not say. Be careful not to say, God is not in charge of all the evil that happens to you.
at the hands of sinful people because that just won't stand up to this passage and many other passages. The hostility of sinners against these readers, it's real, it's painful, it's sinful, and it is wrong. And for their sin, justice will be enacted and they will be held accountable for their guilt. Absolutely. But all of those experiences at the hands of those sinners is also the loving, painful, child-training discipline of our Heavenly Father. This statement here that we're reading, it will not support a statement like, yeah, well, no, 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 no. God comes to our aid after the cancer or after the persecution or after the jail sentence. And then he takes that evil that has come upon us and all of that, 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 that pain we experience. And he says, okay, I'm going to now turn that for your good. That's not discipline if that were true. That's just being an emergency room surgeon. This says he loves you. And, and, and thus, for reasons children don't know at the present, he spanks and he disciplines you for glorious ends, purposes. What hostile sinners mean for harm, the writer's telling them, God means for good. Let's read verses 9 to 10. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and, well, ultimately, we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share His holiness. What others will for harm and pain and suffering, the Father wills is helpful, weaning us from the world, drawing us to Himself and thus producing holiness. What they plan as destruction of your faith, Christian, Hebrew Christians, that same thing God designs is discipline, growing your faith. You know how the book of Genesis ends. After all Joseph went through, his brothers 
all but one wanted to kill him after they threw him in, in the ditch. They hated him. But no, saved his life, but decided we'll sell him into slavery and made him a slave in Egypt. And then the evil of Potiphar's wife and lies got him thrown into jail. At the end of the book, what does Joseph say to his brothers? He doesn't deny the truth of this and don't ever deny this. As for you, you meant, and that's why it was sinful on your part, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, the same thing, for good. Since this passage is particularly about God's design of discipline through the agency of human sin, human wills, that's what it's about, then it follows very simply that God's sovereignty, it includes the painful discipline that is not necessarily even caused by sinful human wills, like sickness and hurricanes and tsunamis and natural disasters. So if we have fled for refuge in Jesus for our salvation and for our sanctification, then we're meant to see that God reigns over our circumstances, our setbacks, our pains, our health. He reigns as the loving, child-rearing Father that He is. Verse 6 is clear. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. His design is love. If you are clothed with Christ, born again, you've come to saving faith in Christ, you're justified by Christ, He's your high priest who ever intercedes for you at the right hand of God, within all of that stuff that you have experienced or may be in front of you, it is not God's hate or His judgment. It is His transforming love. And so finally listen to verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. No, duh. But later... That painful and unpleasant discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's why he says in verse 5, 
heeded. My son, dear Christian, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Because it's coming one way or another. So again, I can hear Dr. Fuller. What does that mean? Okay, what would it mean to regard lightly what we've read? This discipline of the Lord. Okay, if I regard it lightly, what, what does that mean? Or what does it mean to not regard lightly? I, I, I don't know what else the answer is. Would you keep looking at the text? It would mean to be very careful how you interpret what's happening to you. Be careful how you understand God's providence. To regard lightly would be to fail to see what he says here, God's personal providential care in all that happens to us from the seemingly trivial to the most significant. That's what I think it would mean. Careful how you interpret it and what you say about God in it. God controls every detail of our lives down to the very hairs of our head being numbered. Not a bird falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. If, if a believer only grits his teeth in the midst of trial and only refuses to see it as the loving hand of child rearing in any way, then he or she is regarding it lightly. If he does not take the trial to heart, prayerful self-examination asking God to help me grow through it then he is regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord so let me close with some questions will we go on taking God's discipline seriously? Will we believe this passage? Will we accept the mystery of God's providence in the struggles and painful experiences of our lives? Will we subject ourselves to this relationship and be trained by the Father's loving hand for the sake of holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I say, may we, by God's grace, not rebel against this passage and thus take the discipline of our loving Father 
seriously and not lightly. But much more, let us endeavor to be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Let's pray. Father, into your hands. By the grace of this wonderful good news of your son, Jesus Christ, we commit ourselves, our walk, our lives, and our future. Amen.